Proverbs. Uh, we read in Hebrews that it cuts deep to the heart. It cuts to the quick in terms of conviction. And we pray that as you uh, have spoken to us through the reading of your word tonight, that as we consider it and as it's explained, uh, Lord, you would give us wisdom, you would give us grace to hear, to understand, and apply. We need your help in that. And ask for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, let's open up again to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is going to be the first of three talks in this uh, section of 2 Corinthians that is focused on giving. And I want to start by talking to you tonight, uh, tonight uh, about Ebenezer Scrooge, because he is, of course, that super rich yet penny-pinching character of Dawkins' Christmas carols, 100, about 125 days to Christmas. I figured I could get away with it just now. But I want to hold Scrooge up to you as a model of Christian giving. Now, that might sound surprising to you, but bear with me. Because I guess what you're thinking of is Scrooge at the start of the book. I mean, Scrooge at the start of the book is so miserly that he's probably Scottish. He is mean with his wealth and totally uncharitable with it. The perfect example of that is when Bob Cratchit walks in um, with the shovel, ready to put some coal on the fire. And... Uh, Scrooge not only stops him from doing it, but in his mind reasons, that's it. He's for the sack, even for thinking that he could get away with that on such a cold Christmas Eve. But I want to hold up the Scrooge, not at the start, but at the end of the book to you. Because what do we find at the end of A Christmas Carol? We find that he is completely different. Scrooge is wonderfully generous. He's giddy with delight. You see him walking through the streets, showing real regard for others, stooping to talk to beggars, giving to the needy, charitable acts that the day before were to him totally detestable, were on that Christmas day totally enjoyable. Now what changed, of course, was Scrooge's perspective. He had, as you know the story goes, a supernatural encounter with the ghosts of Christmas, past, present, and future, and that experience is what changed him. And the proof of that change was in what he did with his money. Like I said, the one who inflicted tight-fisted misery on others the day before rejoiced in open-handed generosity. Now, Scrooge for us is an illustration of what happens when the gospel truly grips your heart. When you receive God's grace, you give. In fact, you cannot help but give generously. When the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and shows you what God has done for you in Christ, it changes absolutely everything about you. It changes who you are in terms of your status before him. It changes what you live for. It changes what you do with all you have. It changes what you do with Yes, even your money. God's grace makes a believer generous. To the extent that you can actually look to your giving to prove the genuineness of your love. Now, that's a striking statement. But it's not what I came up with. It's effectively what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1-9, this section we're looking at tonight. 
Look at me at verse 8. Paul actually says here, I want to test the sincerity of your love, not even your giving, of your love by comparing it with others. When he says that, he's actually talking about giving. And it's a double shock because he not only says, I want to test you in this, he says, I want to test you by comparing what your giving is like with others. That should be make you feel a little bit nervous. But he's basically encouraging them to come good on a one-off collection that they had started the year before. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 16 and in Romans 15. It's basically a collection that was for the church in Jerusalem. People who had been so marred and struck down by persecution and by famine. And Paul, now that he is, has visited and as you know from our series so far has reconnected with and encouraged repentance in the Corinthians now upon their act of repentance is saying to them okay um, now let's go back to this thing that we were talking about because actually the proof of your repentance will be in how much you show love to others now don't misunderstand Paul's request. You know, when Paul is saying, I want to test your giving, he is not looking for payment for ministry. He's already said earlier in his argument that he is not a peddler of God's word. He's not peddling for profit. No, Paul is actually inviting them to enjoy and excel in what he basically calls the privilege of participating in what he calls the grace of giving, the gift of giving. Is that how we view giving? Now, there are many things that are surprising and uncomfortable about it, I guess. I mean, the fact that Paul is testing them is surprising, but actually, why should it be? Why should the test of our giving be a surprising thing to us? I mean, generally speaking, would we say that our finances are the only part of our lives that the gospel doesn't touch? Should gospel giving merely be private? I mean, is it the only aspect of our discipleship that should go without any kind of accountability? I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that you start to go up to people after the services and start asking for printouts of their bank statements or going up to the treasurer and say, can I see what uh, Jimmy gives, please? Just to test yourself or to be nosy. But it does mean that actually in terms of accountability in relation to giving, we should ask humbly, and be honest in reply. But perhaps the most surprising thing about this is that Paul's encouraging them to get, compare their giving with others. We don't do that. Giving is such a private matter, we say. And it is, but again, don't misunderstand this. Paul isn't doing this comparison thing in order to make them competitive. This isn't like the words of a mean parent who's saying, I wish you were more like your sister. He's not doing that by saying, compare yourself with these other churches. No, he's simply urging them in this passage to see what kind of effect the gospel has on people. And then to examine themselves in the light of that, knowing that their generosity that flows from it will serve as an indicator of the Corinthians' grasp of God's grace. 
Because when you get God's grace, you give. Now, in verses 1 to 9, Paul provides two examples of generosity that the Corinthians can use to measure against in terms of the sincerity of their love. Now, the first is this example of those who gave out of their poverty, and the second, an example of someone who gave out of his wealth. But let's look at the first point. The one, those who gave out of their poverty. This is the example of the Macedonians in verses 1 really through to verse 7. Let me read to you from verses 1 to 2 again. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, if you read that through carefully a few times, you start to see a bit of a picture going on. And and basically what I want to show you is that the wording is illustrative here. It's grace comes down from God. Joy in them, the church, wells up. And that grace or generosity, if you like, overflows to others. So it's like the church is a vessel. Grace comes down, fills them up. And God gives them so much grace that they overflow with that grace to others, right? That's the picture. But what is grace? What is this grace that God has given us? Well, I love A.W. Tozer's definition. He says, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us sinful men is to save us. And make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Grace is, if you like, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's favor towards us. Favor that we have not earned and do not deserve. It is a free gift of God given despite who we are. That's what makes his grace so glorious. This is the grace that comes down to us from above, from the God who has proven in the sending of his son, the giving of his son, that he is the giver of all gifts. So grace came down and joy welled up in the church. This is the effect that God's grace had on them. To realize that they Though they were so undeserving of the kindnesses of God to save them from their sin. To save them from God's just judgment upon them. And to grant them this gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Joy welled up when they received God's grace. When they grasped God's grace for themselves. But it wasn't just something to keep, of course. God gave so much of it that it welled up within them. It filled them up and then overflowed in generosity. So that in their very act of giving to others, these Macedonian churches, the churches in the likes of Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica, they gave. Now what a beautiful picture of what happens when we get God's grace. God's grace is poured out on us every day, comes down from above. And we delight in him. We ought to rejoice in the grace that we have day by day. Do we? 
Are we moved with joy in Jesus? Because joy is the right and appropriate response to the gospel. Rejoice. I will say it again, Paul says to the Philippians. Rejoice. This grace in this Jesus is this good. But he not only wants us to enjoy him, grace comes down to fill us up so that we might overflow and be mobilized to be givers ourselves. Are we mobilized, motivated to give? Well, let's compare ourselves with the Macedonians still because the Macedonians are those who give generously because when you get God's grace, you give. Look at verses 3 to 5. For I testify, Paul says, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, what are we to note about the generosity of the Macedonians from these verses? There's lots in there. But let me show you three quick things. First of all, their giving, it was sacrificial. They gave out of their poverty. The word for poverty that's used in this passage, in the original Greek back then, was actually a word that was used to describe the very bottom of the sea. So they, their poverty is actually, well, that kind of rock bottom. They were struggling. And things were hard for the new believers in places like Berea, Philippi, and Thessalonica. You can read the book of Acts, and you can read the likes of 1 Thessalonians to see exactly what that looked like. Becoming a Christian hurt their relationships. Becoming a Christian hurt their business. So becoming a Christian hurt their pockets. And the Macedonian churches, as verse 2 said, experienced what Paul calls this severe trial. They were poor and they were picked on for believing in Jesus. Yet, they gave beyond their ability, Paul says. Sounds astonishing, doesn't it? I mean, why would you give if you've not got much yourself? Well, I guess it would be for the sheer joy of it. I guess it would be because when you receive God's grace, when you know God's grace like they do, you give. You want to be generous. So the first thing we see in there is it's sacrificial. But the second thing we see is that it was volitional. It was willing. It was their free choice. It wasn't forced. It wasn't coaxed out of them by the Apostle Paul. We'll look more into the interaction between the one who's calling for the collection and how people give. We're going to look more into that next week. But suffice to say that Paul didn't ask them to give. It seems like their poverty was so severe that Paul wasn't going to at all. Yet, verse 4, they pleaded or begged for the privilege of sharing in this, what they call, service to the Lord's people. That's the way they were describing this collection that was going to go towards the poor in Jerusalem. And we'll talk about more about that next week. But the Christian church in the name of Christ have basically been black marked by the world because foolish, greedy leaders have mishandled money. But Paul here is super careful with his words and underlines just how the gifts will be handled in a way that ensures he's above reproach. And they said, please, Paul, please let us give. Please 
let us give and contribute to this collection. It's remarkable. The third thing we see after it being sacrificial and volitional was that it was fundamentally devotional. Now this is key, verse 5. In verse 5, we learn that they first gave themselves to the Lord before they gave themselves to Paul and effectively to the offering to the Lord's people. Their giving, you see, was therefore the overflow of their devotion to God. They got the claim of the gospel on their lives that when you believe in the Lord Jesus and receive his salvation, you rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that when this earthly tent of ours is gone, we have an inheritance in heaven that will never perish, spoil or fade. We rejoice in all of that. But not just that. We realize that by being saved, we are what we learned earlier in our series. We are glad captives to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. They knew that through faith in Christ, they belonged to him. And their giving was therefore the overflow of their devotion. They gave themselves. They gave their love. They gave their time. Then they gave their possessions and their money to the Lord in this specific collection. They loved God. And they loved their neighbors in Jerusalem so well because they loved God so much. And that's the way it works with this great commandment that Jesus himself has given us. Love God most, love others better. That's the way it works. Now, Paul says they proved the sincerity of their love for God through all of this. And, making a wee cheeky side swipe at the false teachers in Corinth, they've devoted themselves not only to the grace of giving, but to us. In other words, the true apostles. So these Macedonians that we're comparing ourselves with are walking, talking examples of the great commandment to love God and love others. Now, how does our generosity line up with the Macedonians as we compare ourselves with them? You'll know in your heart before God how you match up. I mean, are we sacrificial in our giving? Now, by sacrificial, I don't mean like we want to see you put yourself into poverty. No, that actually only increases the burden on churches. We don't want to do that at all. But it it is a call. Christian giving is no doubt a call to do without certain things in order to give to better things, things that matter, things that last, eternal things. And giving, of course, even as we see here in the Macedonians, is not something that's dictated by the size of your bank balance, nor your ability to give. It's not that you need to reach a certain income before you do. I mean, I doubt the I, I'm, I'm completely speculating here, and I could be underplaying the gift of the Macedonians, but I doubt they gave much at all. But perhaps their gift was like the widow's gift at the temple, whose two meager pennies brought such joy to Jesus. And he said, see, that lady, she's thrown in more than those guys who've made lots of noise pouring in their coins. No matter how small it seems, a gift that's given 
in devotion to God is a beautiful thing in his sight. So is our giving sacrificial? Is it volitional? Are we actually considering? Is it like a standing order that just processes and you only realize on the seventh of the month, oh, that went out seven days ago? Or is there a thought to it? Is there a prayer that goes with it? Lord, use this. I'm sorry, by the way, that we have not been praying more often prayers of thanksgiving for the gifts that folks give in this church family. We haven't been doing that very often. It's not a good thing. We ought to rejoice in that more and more. We ought to think about what we give. Consider it in our hearts. Let it be a devotional thing we do. And think about what we contribute to. Yes, for sure, we should contribute to the life of our local church family. It doesn't work without the gifts of each other as members. But also together to give to special projects like we often do. And is it devotional? You know, if there's evidence in our bank statements that we're not generous, could it be that we haven't given ourselves fully to Christ? I'm asking because I think this passage invites the comparison. I'm examining myself as much as you are you. I guess for some, a frugal hand may reveal an unforgiven heart. That you're not actually in Christ. The encouragement, therefore, is clearly repent and believe the good news. Receive God's grace and be transformed. For others, a lack of giving may be, may, maybe shows up a half-hearted devotion to Christ. You can have my heart, Lord, and my worship on a Sunday, but not my cash. Well, that's problematic for obvious reasons. For still others, the opposite can be true. You can give your gifts to God, and they can look pretty generous, but they're really a gift to yourself. Sounds like the kind of heartless religion that Jesus condemns. Let's not do that. There is no doubt that as we compare ourselves with the Macedonians and look at their example of giving, the encouragement for us is to give ourselves to God and live as we're meant to live. Because when you get God's grace, you give like they do. Now, as we think about applying this as a church family, Charlotte Chapel, I have to say I'm greatly encouraged. When you just take a few minutes to pause and reflect over the years about what God has enabled us to do because he's poured so much grace into our laps that it's welled up within our own hearts and overflowed with generosity to one another, to other churches, even starting new churches and to other nations through cross-cultural workers. It's phenomenal, really. It's wonderful. Whether it's been um, special projects that we've uh, taken thank offerings for. Like the good folks up at Gracemount have been able to appoint an assistant pastor in Tim Rawlinson because we contributed to that joyfully and happily. We're planting a church in Queensferry. We're going um, to set these guys apart in a couple of weeks. Why, how have we been able to do that? Through much prayer, through people sacrificially deciding they're going to go and be a part of it? Yes, but also through giving. 
It's also happening through the giving of our brothers and sisters through the Pillar Network. Joining us in gospel partnership to do it. Our giving has enabled us to train up and send people out like pastors like Martin and Hoyk and Ross down in Musselburgh. We've been able to buy a building like this and use it for the glory of God. There are tons of different ways that we can reflect on generosity. But there's generosity that happens in the simple sharing of gifts between member to member as well. And that's glorious. That's a joy. And we remember the poor through offerings for the likes of Tear Fund and Bethany. And we continually encourage that. But there is plenty more that we can do. What if our giving was sacrificial and volitional and devotional plus, plus, plus? What if we did more? What things could be won for eternity if we did? Many more needs need met. Many more churches need planted. Let's give ourselves to him more and more. So know about the grace God gave the Macedonians. See that it made them generous. Test ourselves with them. And let's test the sincerity of our own love. That's the first comparison, the first example Paul gives. Those who gave out of their poverty. The second, gloriously in verse 9, is Jesus himself. Who gave generously out of his wealth. And what an example he is. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted them to know about the grace God had given the Macedonians. But he says, you already know about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you through his poverty might become rich. Now, like the situation with Paul's words for the Macedonians, this wording is illustrative here too. For Christ to come, it was costly. He was rich. He became poor. Now, the statement, of course, that he was rich speaks of Christ's pre-incarnate existence, who he was in himself before he was born as a baby in a manger, before Bethlehem, folks. He lived. He existed in eternity. He could hold the universe in the palm of his hand, spinning galaxies on his finger like a basketball, and even at the same time charting the flight of solitary sparrows. There is no one like him. And he reigned as ruler over all things. I mean, when you think about rulership and ownership, think about a king or a queen. When you think about a king or a queen, you can't help but think about their wealth. Look at the size of their houses. They're called palaces and castles. They own land. They have great wealth. They even have subjects, people like us. Well, Christ the King, the King of all kings, owns the heavens and the earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His wealth is absolutely immeasurable. It's priceless. And he rules not over a nation of subjects, but over all people. And the picture that we are given is that Jesus, in his eternal state, pre-incarnate state, 
utterly rich, perfectly content, in need of nothing, yet became poor. I think to say that he became poor is the greatest piece of short hand ever written. Because the understated matters of his incarnation, his filthy birth, his impoverished family proven by their offering of two doves at the temple in Thanksgiving. That's a, a poor person's offering. But especially his rejection and his death. That's the kind of poverty that he came into. He became poor financially. He became poor in God's eyes when he bore God's wrath for us, when he became sin for us. But, as Paul says here, it is precisely through his poverty that we are made rich. You see, Christ's example here is not just a giving that was costly, it's a giving that was sacrificial. It was for your sake that he came. It was like all true giving is, other-centered. It was for us in our sinful state. Wicked, rebellious, horrible, sinful people, lost and unable to find their way, in darkness, unable to save ourselves, condemned, condemned to eternal hell until he came. Not out of need, but love. And Paul says, when you think about what he left behind and what he left it for, us, death, a cross, the shame of that spectacle, you cannot help but call what Jesus did the condescension of condescensions, the humiliation of humiliations, or you could just call it love. Because that's exactly what it is. He came and gave himself. We were just singing about it. You left the gaze of angels, came to seek and save the lost, and exchanged the joy of heaven for the anguish of a cross with a prayer you fed the hungry, with a word you still to see, yet how silently you suffered that the guilty may go free. That's what he's done for us. His coming was costly. It was sacrificial. And lastly, it was purposeful. It was so that you could become rich. You who were poor in your sin might become rich. Rich in what way? I hear you say rich in relationships. Rich in relationship with God, friends with him, son and daughters of his, no less adopted into his family and brothers and sisters together. Rich in relationships, rich in love. I mean, what more does his coming, his living, his dying, his rising for us say to us except you're loved? And we're loved with enough to give just like him. And of course, we're not just rich in relationships and in love, but in eternity too, with everything we need in the happy dominion of the Son forever. 
sharing in all he owns in the new heaven and new earth, enjoying such riches for eternity as Christ himself says, where no thief will break in and steal it and moth and rust will not destroy. It's imperishable and it's untouchable. That's what he's given you if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rich. Rich. That's what he's made you to be in him. Man alive, we're spiritually speaking rolling in it with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's glorious. We're so affluent. We've got grace to burn. Jesus is these the perfect example then of this grace of giving. And if you're here tonight and you have not understood this, if you have not known Jesus yourself to be the savior of your soul because he came in love to save you, please speak to us about this. Here, are, here is one verse that explains to you what he has done to make it possible for you to say, be saved. But he calls you to repent, to turn away from your sin and your old life and turn to him in faith, believing that when he died on the cross, he died for you. And when he rose again, he brought assurance of our justification, our being made right with him. Acquittal in the courtroom of God. And free to live for him forever. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You will be rich like him. Well, Jesus is this perfect example of the grace of giving. Alongside the Macedonians, Paul says, look at this example of our Lord Jesus Christ and let's test the sincerity of your love. Let's see how it compares to the earnestness of others. The Macedonians were earnest. They were genuine in their giving. Jesus certainly was earnest in his giving. Absolutely dead on genuous. That Christ gave up everything for us so that we might well up in generosity and we might have everything in him. And it's this understanding of grace that makes you give. It makes us generous. I mean, we've heard the saying, laughing all the way to the bank as an expression of joy and the accumulation of worldly wealth. But grace, the grace of the gospel absolutely flips that. Grace makes Christians laugh all the way from the bank. Ready to give generously to the work of the gospel. Now in closing, two very quick things. First of all, something to know. Second of all, something to do. First of all, know. I want you to know about God's grace. If the grace of God is a new concept to you or you feel like after tonight you haven't quite understood it, I want you to study it more. Think about it more. Jerry Bridges has a book called The Discipline of Grace. There's a great, the first three or four chapters in that book really help you understand what grace is all about. I'd recommend reading that. Come and have a chat with us afterwards. We'd love to help you learn about grace. And it's important because Paul's saying, I want you to know about the grace of God that he has given. To understand his favor towards us is key to living the way he wants us to live as generous givers. Study grace. Learn about it. What it is, what it does in people's lives, how it changes people. Ask each other about this at the end of the service. 
Because when you get God's grace, you give in a way that pleases God. And then something to do, two things. Let's test the sincerity of our love in this matter. Don't be miserly like Scrooge at the start of a Christmas carol, but be the Scrooge at the end of the book and give generously. And then let the examples of generosity in these guys, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in one another's stories, stir you to do what Paul says to do in this passage, and excel in the grace of giving. It's a gift to be able to give. They excelled in many of these gifts, so that Paul could pretty much say of them, you lack nothing in this regard, but I want you to excel in this. Excel in this gift, like the Macedonians, like Jesus. May we excel in it too. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. It really does speak into every area of our lives. And we pray that you would help us as we have studied this to reflect on what this passage says and what you would have us do. Help us to see that your grace comes down to us and fills us to overflowing that we might be generous givers. Help us to consider just to what extent we grasp your grace by looking to how much we give and in doing so test the sincerity of our love. And as a result of that, may we excel in this grace of giving to rejoice in the privilege of participating in this act of service to your people and in this world in the way that builds up your church, in the way that grows your church through souls being saved and brings glory and praise to you, the giver of all good gifts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.